Welcome to Not Quite Magic, a Seven Sisters podcast about interpreters. I'm Elena Langdon, and for this first season, I'm talking to interpreters in a variety of settings and from around the world about remote interpreting. For every interview we launch, the Seven Sisters will then host a live debriefing of the issues raised. Stay tuned for the end of this episode for details on how to join us. For this season's second episode, I talked to Vanessa Costa, who is a director at Cambridge Health Alliance, a multi-facility healthcare system based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. As part of her job, Vanessa manages New England's first on-site call center for medical interpreters, built from the ground up by Cambridge Health Alliance. She talked to me about the transition interpreters made to remote interpreting years ago the advantages of working with local staff interpreters, and the changes brought on recently by the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's listen to her story. So welcome. Thank you for being here. I'm so glad that you agreed to be interviewed for the podcast. Could you describe your current role as Director of Multicultural Affairs and Patient Services? Sure. So Multicultural Affairs and Patient Services at Cambridge Health Alliance is an umbrella department that oversees several service lines. Uh, So within our department, we oversee language access, spoken interpretation, written translation, cultural linguistic education for providers and support staff. Uh, We also have the information desks, volunteer services, and patient transport. That's a lot. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about how you got started? Sure. So I got started in medical interpreting right after high school. Uh, In 1998, I was 17 years old. I had just finished high school. And I heard that Bentley College was offering the first ever training program for Portuguese interpreters uh, for medical and legal interpreting. I applied to the program. I passed the pre-screenings. They did an assessment of foundational language ability and shadowing. Uh, but I was uh, rejected from the program because the dean thought I was too young. Uh, so I had to argue that that's nothing that time won't cure. <laughs> and he eventually let me into the program. It was a 14-month program. And of course, with the understanding that no one would enter the field until they had finished. So I was privileged to be a part of the first graduating class of Portuguese interpreters at Bentley College. Wow. <laughs> I, love your, I love your approach to get in. That's great. Yeah, I won't be young forever. That's true. <laughs> and that's a nice connection with, with me because I came to Massachusetts originally because of Bentley College as well. Not, not the program, um, but, the, but the boyfriend that I moved here with had just been hired to teach at Bentley. But we met later on. We met, I know we met at a conference and you were very much involved with a very good training outfit here in Massachusetts. And you were on a lot of their training videos for medical interpreters. Was that cross-cultural communications? Yes. Okay. So I can tell you a little bit of that story. Uh, Zarita Araujo Lane, uh, the the founder of cross-cultural communications, uh, was also a professor in the Bentley program. Uh, So I had the privilege of being trained by Zarita in medical interpreting, by Teresa Gomes in written translation, and by Arlene Kelly for legal interpreting. So we had the best of the best 
as instructors. And that's how I ended up at Cross Cultural. Once I graduated from the program, uh, I took a gap year and moved to Mozambique. Uh, and when I came back, Zorita hired me as a Portuguese medical interpreter on a freelance basis. At the time, um, cross-cultural work with independent contractors. Nice, nice. Yeah, that's a it's a great outfit. And that, and Arlene Kelly was the first interpreter that I met and really made a connection with here in Massachusetts. Now. What is a typical, because you have a lot of, you have a lot of responsibilities at Cambridge Health Alliance. What would a typical work week look like pre-COVID-19? <laughs> Pre-COVID, it was different. Our meetings were in person. Uh, a lot of our interface with client departments was in person. Uh, and we were doing in-person interpretation all day long, uh, in addition to the work that our dedicated call center interpreters do by phone and video. Uh, so my work week would involve um, meetings with clinical leaders, uh, doing cultural linguistic education for providers, for new employees coming into the organization. Uh, Cambridge Health Alliance has always had a 45-minute dedicated agenda spot in new employee orientation for everyone entering to learn about who our patients are, uh, what languages they speak, what are the challenges they face, what programs has CHA created to help bridge those gaps in access or in treatment or in outcome, uh, and also how to work with medical interpreters. Uh, so I share these responsibilities with my boss, Avlo Kesa, who is the senior director of the department. And on rotation, we would train new employees coming in. Uh, we also would do multicultural um, mental health presentations, uh, nursing best practices, uh, custom sessions uh, for areas that had special needs. Uh, we run CHA's multilingual Facebook presence. So marketing is in charge of the Cambridge Health Alliance official page. Uh, and we work with them on CHA Saúde, which is our Portuguese language Facebook page. And as far as I know, we're the only hospital system in the country to have a Portuguese language social media presence. But the majority of our patients speak Portuguese. It's 23,000 patients in primary care. Uh, so Brazilian Portuguese um, is definitely a need uh, within our community. And we want to get accurate health information and information about services as well out into the community. So that falls under our scope. Uh, and then managing teams of interpreters. We keep interpreters dedicated at the three hospital campuses and also in an off-campus call center, which right now is a 22-seat call center. Uh, and also transporters uh, and information aides and uh, so providing support to, to different areas and to managers and supervisors within our department. That's, so that's great. That's what I did pre-COVID. That's great. And, and that reminds me of, um, of two things. I mean, one is that I, I did work for Cambridge Health Alliance as an interpreter many years ago. And I remember during orientation being very impressed because the, current, the director at the time did present to all the new employees. And later on, when I worked at Bay State, it was the same thing. And it's, I think that's a that's a really important thing to do so that employees from the very beginning understand that this is part of your responsibility and this is how you can, you know, how you can reach the staff interpreters, how you can reach the non-staff interpreters when you have a language that we don't cover, um, all those things. And to have it from day one, you know, be such an integral part of being an employee. It really needs to be day one instruction. 
because in an organization where 43% of patients are limited English proficient and are receiving care in a non-English language, on day two, you're going to need to work with interpreters. Even if you are a qualified bilingual provider or support person, you're going to encounter patients from all over the world that speak many different languages. Uh, so having that orientation before you enter your department is, is crucial. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. And and yeah, like you said, the the amount of of Portuguese spoken is impressed me back then too. You know, it was <laughs> most places it's Spanish and I remember being um being on shift and there were several of us that were Portuguese interpreters and there would be one Spanish interpreter, you know, for the same shift which yes. doesn't happen anywhere else. <laughs> uh -huh. so, so to give you a sense of how we've grown, uh, Portuguese is are still, still our top requested language. We have 23,000 patients in our primary care panel that get their care in Portuguese. The majority are Brazilian, but we also have Azorian, European, and Cape Verdeans who receive their care in Portuguese. Um, we have others that receive their care in Cape Verdean Creole, but 23,000. The next largest language group is Spanish, and that's about 14,000 patients. After wow. that is Haitian Creole, it's about 7,000 patients. Uh, and then the only other two groups that exceed 1,000 are Arabic and Nepali. And they're head-to-head -head at about 1,700 patients each. And then wow. there are about 65 other languages that we serve in a year, but some of the languages are you know, confined to, to one or two speakers. Uh, languages like Twi or Ga or Hebrew. Uh, ASL is about 100 patients within our primary care panel. Uh, so when, when we talk about the official languages of CHA, we speak in terms of English, Portuguese, Spanish, Haitian, Creole, Nepali, and Arabic, because that's your everyday experience here. I really like how you put that, that it's the CHA languages. So what I'd like to talk about now is the wonderful project that that I believe you spearheaded at Cambridge Health Alliance um, for creating a call center for your staff interpreters. Could you talk about how it got started, um, what was the impetus, and then we'll go from there. Sure. So I joined CHA in 2008, uh, but Avlo Kesa, our senior director at, time, at that time, was a manager, and he was already building a call center. He started in 2007. Uh, and the idea in 2007, 2008 was, you know, 50% of interpreting is happening over the phone anyway. There wasn't any video at that time. And providers were, were very dissatisfied uh, with what vendor interpreters could do and not do. Uh, so we work with reputable vendors, the same ones that everyone works with nationwide, but providers had a very strong preference for the staff interpreter. Um, and so we thought, you know, if remote interpreting has to happen, and it's happening anyway, why not get ahead of it? Why not own it? If we can staff it ourselves and handle the bulk of our calls in-house, then we can control the quality and we can improve the provider and patient experience. And so Avlo got together a group of interpreters, some of which had been hospital-based, others had been health center-based, and he asked for volunteers, who can sit down and run a pilot with us? And it was a very small pilot. I think it started with six or eight interpreters seated at phones because there was no video. And we found that the more calls we handled with CHA staff over the phone, the more the use of the phone grew because providers reported a better experience. And when we talk about you know, staff versus vendor, 
it's not that the vendors are not qualified. Of course they're qualified. We have quality assurances written into our contracts. Vendor interpreters often have the same baseline qualifications that your in-person or your in-house interpreters have. But when they're not local and they don't belong to the organization, they're really limited in what they can do in terms of navigation. So they provide quality language access and that's it. Uh, whereas a staff interpreter who is considered an extension of the care team can do so much more. And to give you a very concrete example of that that is still true today, uh, you have a provider in primary care who's about to prescribe a medication and he's about to send it to whatever pharmacy is listed in the electronic health record. And who knows how old that information is, um, whether it's still applicable or not. And sometimes providers will check and say, is you know, Walgreens still your pharmacy? And the patient might nod or say yes, not really understanding the implications. And I can't tell you how many times staff interpreters will say to the doctor, you might want to check and see if the patient's insurance covers that medication at, at Walgreens. Because the last I heard, MassHealth did, did not. Or, and so that's an example of the navigational service that, that your staff interpreters can provide. And, and that's really why providers like them more. These are people that know the organization, that understand healthcare in Massachusetts, uh, and that often have worked extensively with the same patients and providers over time. Uh, and they, they help identify barriers that would otherwise be invisible. Uh, and that does lead to, to compliance. It leads to patient engagement in their health. It leads to better outcomes. And so that's been our experience. As we grew our call center uh, from 2008 to 2012, which is when we added video, um, the, the more calls we handled in-house, the more the providers would use the remote modality. Oh, wow. Interesting. And, yeah, yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah. In 2012, we were able to, well, we had been looking for years on how to implement video because we really felt that video is the best of both worlds. It is a virtual face-to-face -face experience. It gives the interpreter the visual cues that they would have if they were in the room. And for a lot of different types of appointments, it's a lot easier to interpret things that you can see. Uh, and, and, and the time in interpretation is a little bit shorter because you ask for less clarification when you can visualize, for example, a physical therapy exercise or a, a medication instruction for a new diabetic or something that um, is being explained using a graph um, in women's health. Uh, so when you can see it, it, can, it goes faster because you, you, you ask for less, less explanation and clarification. Um, there wasn't a cost-effective way to do it in 2012. Video was very expensive. Uh, when vendors started to offer video, uh, the cost per minute was exceedingly high. Uh, and as a public safety net institution, we, we really couldn't afford it. And yet we passionately wanted to offer it to patients and providers. And we saw an opportunity um, in the Healthcare Interpreter Network which is a collaborative of hospitals nationwide that share interpreter resources. And it was the most cost-effective way to introduce video. So in 2012, we joined the network. And as soon as we introduced video, we went from what at the time was 80% remote and 20% in-person to 90% remote and 10% in-person. Uh, because providers, in particular ED docs, uh, began to implement video where previously they had implemented face-to-face -face because they found it to be just as effective, for example, to triage a patient. Uh, 
Uh, and one of our early adopters was Asad Sayam. He was the chief of emergency medicine at the time. He's currently CHA's CEO. Uh, but he was working on this project to reduce the arrival to triage time for fall patients. He wanted to get arrival to triage to under five minutes, which was unprecedented nationwide. And he was able to do it for English speakers, but not for the other languages, because the ED docs wouldn't use phone, and they would wait up to 20 minutes for an in-person interpreter to become available. Uh, when we rolled out video, the ED embraced it, and it helped them get to arrival to triage in less than five minutes for all patients in all languages, not just for English speakers. That's they amazing. still do use in-person interpreting for more complex cases, uh, but they were an early adopter of video, and I would say that video interpreting is about 95% of all ED interpreting. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. That's a really interesting project to do, you know, reduce that time and be able to do it, you know, for 43% of the popula population, yeah, yeah. right? That's not being treated in English. Now, for people who haven't done this um, or who might be having a hard time picturing it, what does that video look like? Could you describe it to us? So the, the Healthcare Interpreter Network runs on a Cisco platform, so you can use any Cisco video device. So on the interpreter desks, we have um, Cisco 8865s. They're video phones. They're about the size of a regular telephone. Uh, and they have a video screen that enables the interpreter to see into the room when the video is enabled on the provider side. Uh, on the provider and patient side, we're using iPads. And we're using iPads because that's what we could afford to use. But there are some really beautiful large screen devices uh, that organizations with a larger budget can roll out. For example, the DX70, which is, which is like, Amazing. We have a few of those on campus for uh, deaf patients who are also visually impaired uh, so that they can see the interpreter on a larger screen uh, because the iPad might not be large enough. Uh, but because we have a small deaf population and because most of our video interpreting is happening in spoken languages, uh, the iPads have been, uh, you know, just the right, the right fit for most clinical areas. Mm -hmm. And these iPads, are they on a pole that moves? How do you, how do yeah, providers so take that? These iPads are on stands. And the stands are on wheels. And they have the physical footprint of a very small person. <laughs> so they take slightly less space than, than an in-person interpreter would. Uh, and because the stands are metal and plastic, they can be disinfected. Uh, the way that any any equipment can be dis disinfected in a clinical area. Um, they're, they're wireless, uh, so we do plug them in when they're not in use to keep them charged, uh, but they're wireless. They can be taken anywhere in the hospital. They can be utilized even in a corridor or an elevator or some unexpected area where you have a patient with a communication need who is not mobile. They can be wheeled down the hallway with a physical therapist. Uh, who is helping a patient walk after surgery. Uh, there's really no place we haven't been able to take them on campus. That's great. Thank you. I wanted to briefly address something that you mentioned, again, for people that might not be as familiar with the role of medical interpreters and with uh, this idea that you were talking about that staff interpreters can be particularly good at, which is the navigational ability. Um, could you talk a little bit more about how you see that role and what what is included in, and what are, you know, what are the limitations as well for what that interpreter does? Because, of course, 
um, you know, we've seen studies and, and, and people worry about interpreters c conducting the session themselves. And, and mm -hmm. you know, we, we know that that's not what an interpreter does. The interpreter isn't asking the questions. So if you could talk a little bit more about that. I think sometimes this navigational service that interpreters provide is a literal navigational service. Uh, so to give you an example, you know, in an organization where language access is available, not just at all points of clinical care, but at all points of contact, uh, then anyone who takes a call from a LEP person calling in can very quickly conference an interpreter onto the line and help the patient navigate the system. Uh, so it's very common for patients to call in and say, I need an appointment, but I don't have a doctor. Uh, I need an appointment, uh, but I don't know my doctor's name. I don't know the name of the clinic, but it's near the bakery you know, in Everett. Uh, and so having staff interpreters provide the language support, they're able to fill in a lot of the blanks that patients can't provide on their own uh, and help make sure that no one falls through the cracks, help make sure that patients understand how to get the appointments they need, how to access the services they need. Uh, and not that interpreters are always suggesting what those services should be, but they're often able to bring attention to the barriers that patients face as individuals and as a community uh, and provide great suggestions to clinical providers, but also other frontline staff on, on how to overcome those barriers and how to make it easier for patients to get care. It's not a taking over of the clinical treatment at all. We are not clinicians but it's helping patients make the most of their care experience by connecting them to all of the right people within an organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the, one of the people that I'd love to interview is a woman whose name I forget right now, um, who runs an interesting program in Worcester, if I'm not mistaken. And she ha she trains her interpreters to be patient navigators and interpreters. It's kind of a, her own thing. And I, you know, I want to talk to her about that and kind of what the, the nuances of, of that are. Um, but it's a very specific program and they're, they're trained to understand that they are doing, you know, an added role to the interpreter role. And to give you an idea of how that works at CHA, so a patient may call in and say, I don't have a doctor. Um, they've maybe called the operator. So the operator has connected them to a CHA interpreter. The CHA interpreter then conferences in Dr. Finder, which is our department that helps match you to a clinician. Uh, and Dr. Finder will do some intake and say, okay, we need to pass this call over to pre-registration. Uh, and the interpreter can stay on the line for continuity of language access and connect with pre-registration, same interpreter, same patient, and continue the conversation. Um, pre-registration might say, you don't have valid insurance, we need to connect you to finance. Um, to patient financial assistance, which is the department that helps with mass health applications or, or health connector applications. And the same interpreter can still be on the line with that patient uh, and facilitate that third interaction. So often when we get these calls, we're, we're with the patient for 30, 40, 50 minutes, but we've helped them through all of the steps of establishing care or of resolving an insurance issue. And those things are just as important as being present for the clinical care, because if they can't get to the clinical appointment, then we've lost them. Uh, and so that's the navigational service that staff interpreters are able to provide that vendors cannot, uh, just because, you know, there's value in belonging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's, it's often overlooked. And, you know, healthcare in general, to me, seems so fractured. You know, you, you don't have one doctor who takes care of you anymore. You go from, you know, and you, you, 
any appointment that you have, you see five people and the, the actual provider you came to see is the one that you see for the least amount of time. And, and that's for somebody like me, who's, you know, fully, um, fully proficient in English, you know, in the language that they speak. So I don't, you know, I already have problems and I already feel isolated and feel like I'm not really getting that kind of personal attention to really facilitate that connection, I think is a really big extra that it sounds like you're doing through, through using staff interpreters. And again, you know, by, by making it so easy, I was interested to hear that the providers preferred over the phone before, before, even before the call center. Do you have an idea of why that is? It was 50, 50 before the call center. And I think it's because there's an immediacy in phone interpreting that is of value to many providers in many situations and to patients as well. So we we had done work with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation on measuring um, many things about interpreter services. Uh, How long does it take an interpreter to be dispatched? How long on average from dispatch to arrival? How long do they wait from arrival to the beginning of their encounter? How long is an encounter? So we had some of that data uh, and, and providers, you know, they would make a judgment, you know, with the patient. Do we want to wait 10 or 15 minutes for the in-person interpreter to come? Uh, or is this something we can resolve now by using an interpreter over the phone who is available within 60 or 90 seconds, depending on the language? Uh, and so a lot of providers and patients would say, you know, this is a relatively straightforward conversation, we think. Uh, let's just get an interpreter over the phone. Uh, and when we started to staff the phone lines with CHA interpreters, it became easier and easier because the interpreters were able to do more over the phone. Introducing video further tipped the scale uh, because now you can see the interpreter and they can see you too if you want them to. Uh, And that made things easier and faster. Uh, We will never phase out face-to-face interpreting. There are always situations that require it. There are complex procedures, there's interventional radiology, there's C-sections, um, procedures where the patient needs to be awake and communicating throughout the procedure. We send interpreters into those rooms uh, with the clinical team. Uh, there are patients who are hard of hearing, not necessarily deaf, but hard of hearing, uh, who, who rely on the in-person interpreter to sit next to them and project their voice in a way that they can, they can participate in the conversation. Uh, and we have that across all languages. Uh, there are patients who have cognitive limitations. There are patients who come in large groups. So, the, And there are group sessions that we do for psychiatry, uh, for joint replacement education, before surgery, uh, for women's health, uh, group sessions for diabetics, and all of that requires in-person interpreting. So we will always maintain a mix of modalities. And I believe that post-COVID, we haven't talked much about COVID yet, but post-COVID, some of that face-to-face interpreting will come back. Uh, because it's sorely missed. Uh, there, there are certain types of patients, procedures, and situations that will always require the interpreter's physical presence. Uh, but in an organization focused on primary care, which is what we do, uh, in integrated behavioral health, there's a lot that can be done remotely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So two things that I wanted to touch upon before we start wrapping up. And the, the first one is... Related to what we were talking about, what do you know about the interpreter's satisfaction and in the interpreter's understanding or, or even feeling around remote versus face-to-face? The beginning was very hard. Um, 
Avlo did set up the first call center with volunteers who said, you know, let me try this. Anita Coelho Diabate was one of them who said, I'll try it out. Let me pilot this. There were some very courageous people that said, I'll sit down. And, and, and everyone gained weight in the first year because <laughs> we didn't realize the physical implications of sitting down for eight hours a day. Yeah. Um, but these are very brave pioneers who have since gone on to become trainers. Uh, of, of phone and video interpreters for areas such as mental health interpreting. And uh, they basically forged their own way and became subject matter experts because it had not been done before. This was the first hospital-based call center anywhere in New England. As we began to sit more interpreters down, there were fears. There were fears of maybe this is going to be impersonal. Maybe I won't have the same impact that I had in person. There were some logistical concerns, like in person, I can physically, you know, gesture or stop someone or, you know, make some kind of physical movement or intervention that helps me control the flow of communication. And that's harder to do when I'm on a video screen or when I'm just on the phone. Uh, so how to manage the dynamics of conversations, that was a big concern in the beginning. Uh, when we joined the Healthcare Interpreter Network, when we introduced video, um, the unions did come and say, you know, what is this about taking calls from other institutions? Why wouldn't we only focus on our own internal calls? Uh, and we had to make the financial case to them that, you know, this is going to be job security for interpreters. Uh, this is going to, to lower vendor expenses and the reliance on vendors. It's going to give CHA providers access to other hospital-based interpreters who can provide a similar service to that provided by our own hospital-based interpreters. Uh, it will maximize interpreter downtime and actually generate a little bit of revenue. Uh, and, and we promise no job cuts. And we're very happy to say that since 2012, there have been no reductions in force. We have only grown our team. Uh, so we've grown to be a team of 58 regular staff uh, and a number of per diems. There are 100 interpreters overall in the department uh, representing about 15 different languages. Wow. Wow. And is it 90% of the encounters are remote? To give you an idea of volume, uh, we get a thousand interpreter requests a weekday. This is pre-COVID. Post-COVID, it's been higher. And I'll tell you a little bit about that in a minute. Uh, so we get a thousand interpreter requests a weekday. Uh, we do about 365,000 requests in a year. Of those 1,000 requests, about 90% and sometimes higher than 90% are, are remote. So these are phone and video calls that are coming in in real time. COVID has changed a lot of, of, of this. Um, very quickly, we went to about 99% remote because primary care clinics are not seeing very many patients in person. Um, the whole organization has moved to a temporary telehealth system using Google Meet. Uh, and we've been supporting that since day one. It's resulted in a higher call volume for us uh, and, and we are as busy as we ever had been. Um, by virtue of sitting everyone down with very few people venturing out onto the inpatient units right now to provide in-person interpreting, uh, we've gone from handling 800 of our 1,000 in-house um, to doing about 1,300 calls a day in-house. So we've, you know, that's, it's an interesting experiment and I don't think that it's sustainable forever post COVID, uh, but when you sit your entire workforce down at video phones, what can they produce? Uh, and for us, we are, we're handling 500 more calls a day than we normally would in house. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I mean, it makes sense because the, the providers are being 
more productive to a certain extent. I mean, if they're not ha- they don't have to physically move right in between rooms and mm-hmm. there's, there's probably less downtime for yeah, them in that yeah. sense, if they're, if they're doing it all with Google meet. Wow. Yeah, telehealth health has been very interesting. A lot of the providers are working from home. Uh, most of our interpreters are temporarily working from home uh, and the patients are also home. Uh, so what the interpreters say is that it's, it's, it's surprisingly intimate because you're seeing the patient in their natural environment, uh, which is something that we didn't do before. We only saw them in clinic. So you get more of a sense of how patients live because you're peering into their home. Oh, wow. So it's like going back to the way medicine used to be practiced. Yes. The doctor would come to your house. Absolutely. So the doctor, you see the doctor's home, you see the patient's home, you can see the interpreter in their home environment, which is a little bit like yours. It's improvised right now. Right. Yep. Uh, we have a, a variety of different backdrops. We tried to put up a CHA logo sign behind every interpreter uh, because we, it's good for team spirit. And it's also a requirement of the healthcare interpreter network to know which hospital the interpreter is from when they come on, on screen. Um, but yeah, telehealth is surprisingly intimate. Uh, it saves patients time because they don't have all of that time of commuting into the clinic, waiting in a waiting room, seeing several ancillary staff that are not the provider, and then just spending 10 or 15 minutes with the provider. Um, it's just doctor to patient or PA to patient or nurse to patient. Uh, and the interpreters say that patients are actually getting more quality time with the clinician, him or herself, uh, than they did when, when they had to come into the clinic. Wow. So eventually our clinics will reopen, uh, but I think that there are elements of telehealth that will, that will stay, that will remain post-COVID because they are perhaps an improved experience in some areas mm-hmm. for some patients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and I wonder, I wonder if the providers might, might, have more satisfaction that way too because i mean ultimately you know from everything i've i've heard and read you know providers too want to give more time to their patients you know they that's that's why they became providers let's just back up a little bit and just briefly talk about um how you made the decision and then how it went when the pandemic was declared and started to affect you what did you do with your call center Mm -hmm. staff When the local COVID-19 response began here in the Boston area, uh, CHA as an organization took a look at uh, whose work can be done remotely. How many employees can we send home um, in their regular schedules, in their regular positions to do their job off campus? Uh, And the idea was to help as many people to shelter in place as possible. And immediately the call center came to mind. It's a 22 seat call center. It's a very comfortable call center. They have very nice cubicles, but it is a cubicle shared environment. And we thought, wow, we don't want to keep these 22 people coming into work every day together. And if one gets sick, we could potentially have all 22 quarantined at the same time. We thought they're already doing phone and video. This is their dedicated work. Why not just send them home with their video phones? And so we worked with the technical advisors at the Healthcare Interpreter Network uh, to set up VPNs. We had to purchase licenses for the phones uh, for VPN, which is the virtual uh, private networks, uh, so that any interpreter that had, and we only had three criteria, uh, a private space, a quiet space, and broadband internet. If they had those three things, they could take their phone home with a VPN license and plug it in, um, and they did. Uh, we were able to send within three days 46 of our 58 interpreters home. Uh, 
and they plugged in within a few hours. They got up and running within about a day. Uh, and so we really didn't lose any interpreters or any interpreter time in this transition. Wow, that's amazing. And so in terms of the technical setup, they have the Cisco phones, video phones will connect via Ethernet to their broadband yes. connection. Is that right? Okay. They're plugging the phones directly into the internet router and the phones have been programmed for VPN. Uh, and so the phone is jumping onto a secure network uh, when they log in. Uh, and they're able to provide audio and video interpreting just like they do in the office. We then started looking at our hospital-based interpreters and thought, you know, do we really, we're going to be doing less face-to-face. -face. Um, we want to expose as few interpreters as possible to sick patients, although we will need to maintain a core staffing around the clock. Uh, so how many hospital-based interpreters can we send home with a video phone uh, and add them as call center extensions? And um, that, that was part of the, the, the 46 that went home. It was the 22 in the, in the dedicated call center and many others from Cambridge, Somerville and Everett hospitals that said, I'd like to go home during the pandemic with my video phone. Um, and by virtue of sitting all of these folks down together at the same time, uh, we're able to do 500 more calls a day than we, we had pre-COVID. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So what I'm, I'm here at Everett Hospital, um, Jean Adam, hospital interpreter supervisor is at Cambridge. Uh, he visits the Somerville team, which is our smallest team. And what we have is essentially one on-site interpreter per major language per shift for Spanish, Portuguese, and Haitian Creole. Uh, and those interpreters have done some in-person interpretation in our three weeks of COVID. Um, they've gone to the ED, uh, they've gone to med surge units, and they've gone into the ICU, but they've gone with full PPE. They have personal protective equipment available to them for those few cases that still require in-person interpreting. And, and you are going to the hospital every day? Every day. You're speaking to me from the hospital. I'm in my office at Everett Hospital. Um, and Jean is in his office at Cambridge. And we've been pulled into many other initiatives because it really is all hands on deck right now. So because we have experience with iPads and video interpreting, uh, one of the programs that I'm supporting now is building up iPads for FaceTime for ICU and comfort care areas. The idea being that because visitation has been restricted and most sick patients can't have their family members come into the hospital right now, let's set them up with bedside iPads so they can FaceTime with their loved ones. Uh, and so that's been one of my new things that I've done this week is build some iPads on carts uh, and help deploy them to to the the inpatient units for for this kind. It's communication related. It's not interpreter related. But the idea is that no one should have to be alone when they're sick and everyone should have a connection to their family. And while a lot of patients have smartphones and tablets that they bring in, a lot of patients don't. And so we want to make sure that everyone has a way of communicating home. Yeah, that's wonderful. Do you have anything else that you'd like to add as advice for other managers or directors wanting to do this, you know, in a hospital setting or a court setting or, or another setting where language access is needed? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, everyone is scrambling now to figure out how to protect interpreters without impacting language access. Uh, and so they're balancing the need for language access with the need to preserve the workforce and keep everyone healthy. A pandemic is really not the time to do this, um, although it's where we find ourselves now. 
what I'm seeing in Massachusetts, because Massachusetts has a very strong structure for medical interpreting. Uh, we have the Forum on the Coordination of Interpreter Services, which is a support group of language access coordinators that meet every other month. And it brings together organizations large and small, and we share challenges and best practices. And so other hospital systems in Massachusetts have been building internal call centers. Mass General is an example of a very successful program. Steward Healthcare is an example. East Boston Neighborhood Health Center, there are others. No one anticipated a pandemic, but this is work that needs to be done before an emergency. The hospitals that already had invested in a staff model that have staffed internal call centers, their transition to remote was a lot easier than hospitals that had resisted along the way, or interpreters who had thought, I'm never going to do that, I'm a face-to-face -face interpreter. And although face-to-face -face has a special place in my heart, uh, I keep thinking back to, and I'm forgetting who said it, it's that technology will not replace interpreters, but interpreters who use technology will replace interpreters who don't. I think every health system and also school systems and any public system needs to think about what are my what's my language access plan uh, and what's my contingency. Uh, and if face-to-face -face is how we want to go, if that's plan A, what is plan B and what is plan C? Uh, and how can we make sure that through some modality, uh, if, one, if one of our systems goes down, we're not left hanging. The volume is so vast that we would never be able to do that with in-person only. And that's why we started 12 years ago thinking about remote. Communities that have a, a lower percentage of LEP maybe hadn't felt the urgency. Uh, and of course, the pandemic changes everything. Right. Yeah, no, certainly. And, you know, as you said, it exacerbates the problems, you know. So if you don't, if you don't have a language access plan in place or you don't have you know, haven't really thought about how to do it, it's going to exacerbate it just like it exacerbates the other disparities in health that we see. Mm -hmm. So now moving on to a little more positive note, <laughs> um, this is a section that I'm calling Love What You Do. And it's, it's going to finish off to talk about this notion of loving what we do professionally. And I, I feel really lucky to, to be doing something that I, that I truly love and that keeps me going. So I wanted first to get your impression on that, how you feel about your work and, and loving work, um, not just whether you do, which I, which I have a feeling that you do, but even just that notion of, of doing work that you love and why. Uh, I feel fortunate to be able to do work that I love. Uh, I started off as a Portuguese medical interpreter. I miss that. I don't do nearly enough of it anymore. And I think my interpreter skills, a bit like my physical fitness, have, have declined. <laughs> Uh, interpreting, it really is a muscle that you need to continually work out to remain strong. And so I find that when I do interpretation now, I'm not as good as I used to, and I have these blanks. And um, it's definitely something that you need to keep dusted off. You can't put it on a shelf and take it down and expect that it will be what it was. Uh, so I, I miss interpreting, and I'm looking for ways to do more of it. But I also enjoy the coordination of language access programs, and I feel blessed to be in an organization that invests heavily in the staff interpreter model. I'm blessed to have a team of 100 people, uh, 58 of which I see all the time because they are regular staff. I love living in this community where there is so much language diversity and ethnic diversity, and I'm so happy that we're well positioned to help patients access primary care, emergency care, uh, and during this pandemic, COVID care. 
so yeah, I'm, I'm doing work that I love that is peripherally related to my original love, which was medical interpreting. Okay. But I, I envy you. I, I, <laughs> um, I, I envy all of the interpreters that get to interpret full-time, uh, and particularly the ones like yourself that, get, that travel the world and meet the most interesting people in, in the most interesting places. Um, and I think more young people should consider interpreting as a first profession and see where it takes them, uh, because it will, you know, it will give you a lifetime of, ex of, of amazing experiences. Yeah, no, it definitely does. And, I, and, and by starting young, yeah, you can, you know, you can see all that there is to, to offer, you know, in it. And, and the younger generation also being a very, you know, flexible generation, one that wants to, you know, embraces changing and looking at, at and pivoting and looking at new ways to do it. That is one, one of the things I love is the variety and the traveling. You know, there's a lot of jobs that might look glamorous or that, you know, I'll interpret for somebody who, who might be well-known nationally. But in the end, the ones that I really like are the ones where I'm connecting with Brazilians, just regular people, you know, and, and, and helping them communicate what they need to communicate and help them understand how to access services. I mean, that, that really is the, what I most like. And then, you know, I do get to do some amazing ones with indigenous leaders who are spreading a really necessary message that I really connect with. So of course, that's really amazing. But then there's also a lot of business related meetings that that doesn't doesn't move me at all. Mm -hmm. And then the, and then I and then I like it for the linguistic challenge yeah. for learning something new. Yeah. In terms of connecting with real people, those real people have been connecting back um, in this pandemic. Uh, CHA, like most organizations, is very concerned about the supply of masks, for example. And um, the volunteer health advisors who are from the community and speak a variety of different languages, they've been running um, kind of like a, a, a grassroots program to make masks. And Brazilian women uh, from Everett, from Malden, from Revere, even as far as Brockton, have been making and donating thousands of masks to CHA uh, with such care and love. These are our patients reaching back uh, and saying, we want to support this effort too. So I, 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 I do love this strong connection to the community. And uh, it's not a one-way giving, it's a giving and receiving. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, that's, I, had, I had read about that and that's, that's really great. Okay, well, finishing up. So now we're going to do the rapid fire section. Okay. So these are just kind of short yes or no, or which one you prefer type answers. So notepad or digital pad? Notepad. I'm a pen and paper girl. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Is there any special object or totem that you take with you when you interpret or that you did? It's actually a pen. Um, if I'm not holding a pen it impacts my memory. <laughs> I, I, cannot, I cannot retain messages unless I'm holding a pen. It's some kind of psychological safety for me. Uh, even if I'm not note-taking, I'm holding my pen and it just helps me perform better. And I know the answer to this one, but freelance or staff? Oh, I, there's room for all of us in the field, uh, but I love my staff and I'm, I'm heavily invested in the staff model. Consecutive or simultaneous? Consecutive. I think that many of our patients also speak some English and they're listening to hear the provider and then to hear the confirmation through the interpreter. Uh, I think consecutive is really well suited to most medical interactions with our community. And is there a term 
or kind of an area or a category of, of terms that never seem to stick, that you stumble on time after time? Huh. I forgot the word for bedpan once, and the patient knew it, and I couldn't remember it, and she laughed at me. That, that was... <laughs> so yeah, there, there are words I draw blanks on, and, and sometimes patients fill them in, and it leads to um, you know, a bit of humor in the moment. Okay, and the final one is, what's your favorite podcast? This is Criminal with Phoebe Judge. I have a weakness for true crime. You know, so do I. <laughs> I love true crime. <laughs> it's a real problem sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit addictive. And it's also an escape from, from the realities of the moment. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much, Vanessa. This has been wonderful. Thanks for chatting. This was fun. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Not Quite Magic. I hope you enjoyed the interview. As always, Laura, Liz, and I will be hosting a live debriefing of this episode on our Facebook page. You can join us for that discussion, which will take place on June 24th at 2 p.m. And our Facebook page is Seven Sisters Learn. You can stay up to date with our podcast and all the courses that we're offering on our website, which is also sevensisterslearn.com. See you next time.